welcome everybody. Good to see you. Good to be together. Good to have the opportunity to dig into God's Word in that regard. If, uh, I hope that you've brought your journals with you. We are in the midst of using one particular journal. It's a three-series journal. All right, we already did Fresh Start in it, and now we're into Daniel. You might say, well, mine says Fresh Start on the front. Well, if you just pick up one of these stickers, if you don't have one already, and slap this on the front, now it's also a Daniel journal, and you're going to want to bring it back all the way to the end of the year because it's also going to be the journal we'll use for our next series, and we'll have another sticker to, uh, to theme it for that particular series as well. So if you didn't get one of those stickers yet, grab one. Do be bringing back those journals. If you don't have a journal, maybe you're new, but uh, you just never found your way to a journal, there are some available for you out at the Information Center, so please stop and pick one of those up. Welcome to everybody. Welcome to those of you who are watching online, those of you who are in our classic venue or on our Moon Campus. Good to welcome you here today as well. As we get started today, I want you to think for a moment about a great monument or statue somewhere in North America, all right? I'm going to give you just a second to, to think of one there in, in North America. It doesn't have to be your favorite necessarily, maybe just the first one that came to your mind. And now sort of responding with a woo, all right? Tell me if I get the one that you're thinking of, all right? So uh, how many of you would be thinking of the Statue of Liberty? All right, that's several of you. Um, apparently, we don't have the TV, all right? How about uh, the Washington Monument? Okay, you're not very enthusiastic monument people, but at least you thought of it, right? Um, how about Mount Rushmore? Okay, there are a couple of you, all right. How about the Cheadle? Here, wait for it, there we go. How about the Cheadle? Anybody? All right, we had one. We had one. I, I doubt that. I think you're lying because uh, this just was unveiled last month, just in October, not even a month ago, in Alberta, Canada, the Cheetle. And what it is celebrating, of course, is that cheesy residue that's left on your fingers after you eat Cheetos. Right? You know what it's talking about. You've had that, you've had that happen to you, and it's there in Alberta, Canada right now, now it's not quite as inspiring as the, you know, the Lincoln Memorial or the Roberto Clemente statue down in Pittsburgh or the Fred Rogers statue down in Pittsburgh. It's not as inspiring as what those are, but it is going on tour soon, and maybe it'll come to Pittsburgh, and you can see that statue, that monument, when it gets here. I'm sure you're super excited. Now today, I'm sure you're also super excited because we are jumping back into this series that we have just started through the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And you haven't, if you haven't already turned to it, please open up to the book of Daniels near the end of the Old Testament. It is right before the Minor Prophets, right after the Big Prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. You'll find it there. Last week, as we got this started in those first couple of chapters, we were introduced to Daniel, the namesake of the book, the author of the book, and also his three friends. Hananiah, Azariah, and uh, Mishael. Those are their Hebrew names, but those names were changed, of course, to Abednego and Meshach and Shadrach. And I said those backwards just to mess with your mind because we only ever say those the other way around, right? Well, it's time to learn to say them in any particular order. All right, well, we meet them and we find that these are guys that are very, very faithful to God. We were also introduced to 
the kingdom of Babylon, this very mighty kingdom, and its mighty king, King Nebuchadnezzar. We learned about him there last week also. And Nebuchadnezzar was very powerful, a very uh, dynamic leader. And uh, what we learned about him is at the end of chapter 2 that this is a guy whose story intersects with a statue. There's a statue, and it's a dream that he has, and Daniel comes and interprets this dream about this statue. And now as chapter 3 opens up today, we're going to take a look at that. What also is on Nebuchadnezzar, this king's mind, is again a statue. There's a lot of statues going on here. This time it's not a dream. This time it's a construction project. And this particular construction project is going to create a lot of problems and a lot of issues for Daniel's three friends, right? Abednego and Shadrach and Meshach, those three guys. It's going to create a lot of problems and a lot of issues for them. Now, here's the thing with this project going on. It's going to put them, these guys, under the fire. They're going to be facing a fire, actually, both literally as well as figuratively speaking. And it sets up for us one of the best-known and best-loved stories of all of the Bible. Now, it's not just a story in the fact that it's made up. This is an actual account of things that have transpired. And so, but it's one that is best known kind of probably among all of us who are here. But these aren't the only guys that are under fire. We start in chapter 3, we see them under fire, but we're going to go on to chapter 4 and 5 today, and we're going to see other people that are under fire as well. Now, the circumstances are very, very different for these other guys than it is for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's very different for them, and we're going to take a look at their situation because we can process circumstances in ways different from what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do, and we're going to see how these others do and see what the consequences are of the way that they've responded, and we might just learn a few things about ourselves as we make our way along in this. So, this all begins though, in chapter 3, where the first of the lessons that we learn when it comes to facing the fire is this one. It's that God will care for the faithful. This is for your outline. You can transfer this over into your journal. God will care for the faithful. The backdrop for God proving his faithfulness comes as Nebuchadnezzar builds this large statue, and Daniel wants to tell us about it right away out of the chute in chapter 3. So if you look at it, chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, a cubit, your footnotes might tell you that it's about 18 inches. So this statue is about 90 feet high and it's about 9 feet wide, roughly, something of that nature. Now, to put that in perspective for you, maybe you've even been to Rio de Janeiro, or if you haven't, you've at least probably seen the statue, Christ the Redeemer. This is about the same size as the statue that he sets up, that Nebuchadnezzar sets up. This is a huge statue that Nebuchadnezzar has set up, especially for the 6th century B.C. that we see this. Now, we can't say for sure whether or not the statue that Nebuchadnezzar has set up is an image of himself or whether it's an image of one of his gods that he has set up, but it is clear that it is an idol that he intends that people will bow down and worship. So he calls the officials together to come for this dedication of this, this golden image that he has set up, and we read about it. He declares, verse 4, 
nations and peoples of every language, this is, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. And it wasn't very long before the Babylonian band starts to play and everybody in the nation just falls down on their faces and they start worshiping this golden image. Well, almost everybody. You know that there are these three who were in the king's service who refused to do so. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refuse. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They have the audacity not to do so. You know a lot of this story. Now, it seems as though Nebuchadnezzar doesn't personally observe that these three Hebrews didn't bow, bow down to the statue. But he's going to find out because there are other wise men who come and they tattle on them to the king. Oh, king, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow down to your statue. And I think they said it just like that because whenever somebody tattles, I can only hear it in the voice of my sister. All right, and so I think that's probably, and it's pretty effective for them when they do it, just like it was usually pretty effective for her when she did it. And Nebuchadnezzar is furious, and he calls them in, and actually very much to our surprise, he gives them another chance. He doesn't just say, okay, off with you guys to the furnace. He says, tell you what, you might not have heard right, or who knows what the, the reason might be, but I'm going to give you another chance, maybe because of his respect for Daniel, or maybe even for these guys. I'll give you another chance, and he does. But despite the fact that they get another chance, they're like, no, no, no. We, we were right the first time, and we're going to do the same thing this time. They, they dare to be different, like we talked about last week. They're not conforming to what the pressures are all around them, and they're pressing forward with what they know is right that there is one God, and he's the only one that they are going to worship. So despite the fact that they get another chance, they don't. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, these are key verses here in this whole chapter. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were making this no-holds-bar sort of declaration about their trust, about their faith and the sovereignty of God and what God can do on their behalf, and they believe that he will. And that's incredible, and that's pleasing to God. But it's not impressing Nebuchadnezzar so much. Verse 19, Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. Which to me sounds like the king's anger probably got the best of him. Because if you think about it, if you want these guys to really suffer, wouldn't you cool the furnace? It's still going to destroy them. It's still going to take their life, but it would make them suffer that much longer. But he doesn't do that. He heats it seven times hotter, so hot, in fact, that the guards who take and throw these guys in the furnace, they perish. They die because of their exposure to this extreme heat. That's what's going on. Now, Nebuchadnezzar sits back and it's like, all right, for the show, I get to see these guys turn to toast. All right? And he's sitting back and he's ready to watch and what he sees stuns him. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, 
Weren't there three men that were tied up and threw in the fire? Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Now, the identity of that fourth person is clearly supernatural. There's no doubt about that. The text will later say angel, and it could be that it was an angel, but it's also very likely that this is a Christophany, which is simply a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus who comes on the scene and provides for his people as, of course, ultimately he is going to do. It makes perfect sense. We can't say with 100% certainty because the text doesn't lay it out that plainly for it. But whoever it is, Paul, or the, the point is clear that God has sent a miraculous deliverance for these three to get them past the king's death sentence that was issued against them. And with that, Nebuchadnezzar declares in amazement, verse 28, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel to rescue his, and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own God. And so for the second time in two chapters, we see Nebuchadnezzar here praising the God of heaven. This is absolutely amazing. And here's what I want you to notice. These three guys, these three Hebrews, could have given in to the king's command. They could have bowed down, and they would have had a certainty that their life was not going to be lost. Yes, it would have been shrinking back a little bit. Yes, it would have been saying, um, well, I know that that's not exactly what we probably should have done, but at least we're alive, and I know that God would want us to be alive. And so all's well. They could have taken that posture if they wanted, but if they had done so, we need to understand Based on what we have seen here, their lives would have had a fraction of the influence that they end up having, a fraction of the meaning that they end up living out if that was the choice that they would have gone ahead and made. Yes, they might have spared their own life, but what would Nebuchadnezzar be thinking? Nebuchadnezzar would be thinking, yeah, I am so powerful. These guys who were going to defy me, now they're afraid of me and they are bowing down and they're doing exactly what I'm declaring that they must do and I am this mighty powerful one. That's exactly what if he, he would just continue on thinking. But because of the circumstances as they unfold, what happens is he starts to examine for himself who he is over against the one who has provided for these three and done something miraculous on their behalf, and it forces him to process through those circumstances, and he ends up, Nebuchadnezzar, who otherwise would have been celebrating his own glory, ends up giving glory to God because of the way that these three followed through on the sovereignty of God or the belief that they had in the sovereignty of God. That's the difference that it makes. And the difference that you can make in your life is no less. As you stand up for principle, as you stand up for Christ, as you dare to be different yourself and refuse to conform, but move forward in the office, move forward in the workplace and in the neighborhood or wherever you might be with a commitment to following through on what Christ is calling you to do, not just on what might seem to put you in the best position for moving yourself forward, going forward. It's actually because of their suffering that their lives take on the meaning that God intended for them. Just allow that to roll over in your mind for a minute. It's actually because of their suffering that they are brought to the place where their life takes on extra significance. Now, I don't know what God's going to allow in your life, but I do know that he won't desert you or let you down. 
Why that seems to bring a greater trial and difficulty and pain in one person's life than it does in another person's life, I don't know. But what I do know is that regardless of which circumstance you might believe that you are in, that God is still with you. God will still direct and God will use you for his purposes out of whatever circumstance you find yourself in. You can count on that to be true. Sometimes he delivers you from the fire and sometimes he joins you in the fire, but either way he's there accomplishing something great in you. The apostle Peter knew a little something about going through trial and he says this, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Friends, that's what we are living our lives for. We think we're living our lives for my glory, for my ease, for my pleasure, for my comfort. Peter says, no, we're living our lives for the glory of God. And so whatever we can do, whatever God wants to do through us to advance his glory is all in bounds. And until we come to the place where we recognize that and understand that and accept that for what it is, we're always going to be kicking against what his purposes would be. We're always going to be failing to understand how God might work all things together for good, how he might take some circumstance which seems so difficult and painful and hard and actually be using that for his glory and ultimately for our benefit as well. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego help us to understand. When they're facing the fire, what they have come to recognize is that God will care for the faithful. And the only way that we can learn that is as we walk with him through the difficult circumstances that come our way. These guys learned it and it went deep into their spirit, you can believe, for this moment and for every moment that will come on down the road for them. Then as Daniel continues about facing the fire, we learn another lesson, and it's this one here. Secondly, that God will humble the proud. God will humble the proud. As chapter 4 opens, we're moving on, we find a couple of changes from the previous three chapters. For one thing, some years have passed. In fact, it's probably about 20 years later now, down the road, we're getting right to the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life, right to the end of his reign. A lot of time has passed. The other thing that's very different about chapter 4 that you may see here is that it's written from his perspective. It's as though he is writing. And what we have here is his declaration. It's his proclamation about his life, about his experience, about his relationship with God. That's all going on here in this text, and we can see it. And it's just that Daniel would have taken basically what this declaration of Nebuchadnezzar is and taken it and incorporated it into his broader account here. And given what we've already seen of Nebuchadnezzar, it's pretty amazing the way that his testimony begins. Look at verse 2, chapter 4. He says, It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Isn't that awesome? Doesn't that sound like some pastor would stand up and say that? And here's this king, and we've seen what's been happening with this king. It's bold and beautiful, and it's right for us to be asking the question, did Nebuchadnezzar put his faith and trust in God? In the God of heaven? Yes, it certainly sounds like he does. Right here. 
This is very interesting. And here's what's going on in this chapter. He wants to use this chapter to tell us about his experience, about his life, and there's going to be some difficult circumstances. And so what's going on here is right here at the top, what we have just read, it's like he, he says, here's my conclusion to what my experience has been. And then it's like flashback. Let me tell you about what got me to that place. Let me walk you through all of that. Then at the end, we're going to see another response of praise like we have at the beginning. He's just kind of telling you at the start where it's going, and then he helps you to see the way through it. So understand that as we make our way along. And that brings us to the story in the text here that tells us about another dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And he's got to be a little bit concerned about that because he remembers the way that the last dream turned out. Not so good. Do you remember that, that uh, scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where they open up the, the, like the, what do they call it? The well of the souls and they drop in the torch and he looks down and he sees all the slithering around and he just kind of rolls over and he says, snakes. Why'd it have to be snakes? Well here, I just think of Nebuchadnezzar when I hear that because he's got to be going, dreams. Why'd it have to be Dreams. Because dreams do not work out very well for him, at least they haven't to this point. To this point, the last one spoke about his demise, and he's probably wondering what this one's going to take away from him. <laughs> Little does he know. Little does he know. So he's back to the old routine. He calls in the wise men of Babylon. Hey, I've had this dream. He doesn't make them tell him what the dream was this time. He just says, here's the dream. What's that mean? Of course, they can't answer him. So he's like, well, I guess I should call Daniel. Now, why he didn't call Daniel in the first place, I don't know, because Daniel's the guy who came through for him the last time. Maybe because he, does, he wants a different sort of dream. He wants a happy response to the dream, but eventually he calls in Daniel, and Daniel's there, but Daniel's a little bit reluctant to telling him what the dream's all about because he knows that the dream does not bode well for Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 19. Belteshazzar, that's Daniel's Babylonian name, he answered, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places and its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. Sounds pretty good so far. Then comes the interpretation. Your majesty... And this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you, that means seven years, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. The king is told exactly what he needs to do to retain his throne, and Daniel's trying to help him to get to that place, but he just ignores the advice. The judgment even delays for a while to give him the opportunity to repent and to turn, and he still doesn't do it. Why not? When all of that is there in front of him, well, the reason is because his pride is just too great. 
It's just too strong. Verse 29, 12 months later, a year later, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, look what he says. Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And while he's still talking, this prophecy is fulfilled. And Nebuchadnezzar becomes like an insane man and starts to live like a wild animal. And that lasted for the prophesied seven years. Then fast forward to the end of it, verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Notice, he's not raising his eyes to himself. He's not raising his eyes to his power like he had been. Not raising his eyes to the golden statue that he has built. He's not raising his eyes to his glorious Babylonian kingdom that is so powerful and so strong. It says he's raising his eyes to heaven, which means to God. And it's in that moment that he's restored. Just like the prophecy said. And listen to this, verse 34. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. It's basically back to where he started. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is restored, returned to him as predicted, and he concludes, verse 37, some awesome words here. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar's fatal flaw was his pride. It just keeps popping up again and again and again. And God gives him every opportunity to turn from it. But he doesn't. Maybe because he wouldn't. Maybe because he'd allowed it to so much sow a seed in his heart that he couldn't. So God took matters into his own hands and he forces Nebuchadnezzar to face the fire, to face a trial of his own. Why? So that God might get his attention. And he does. It could have been far simpler for Nebuchadnezzar to just have heeded the warnings and to humble himself. But if you're someone who struggles with pride, that's a lot easier said than done. See, you and I are a lot like Nebuchadnezzar. We also struggle with pride. We all do. You might consider yourself to be a humble person, but we all have that proud, that arrogant something inside of us that doesn't want us to bow our knee to anybody, and, and that carries right over to God, no doubt. And wherever pride is allowed to reign, God cannot. Unfortunately for Nebuchadnezzar, he wasn't willing to humble himself before God, so God humbled him. And some people might say, you know what, it just seems really cruel of God that for seven years he would make this guy live the way that he lives. But is that cruel? I mean, if the outcome is that instead of separation from God, you end up in fellowship with God, what price is too high? If God is moving you to a place where you experience the greatest glories for all of life and eternity versus being set aside? What price is too high? 
Saul worked in Nebuchadnezzar's favor. And the same is true for us. God will humble the proud. So he's calling you and me to repentance, to recognize where we've gone wayward, to where we've made it about ourselves, to where we're setting the following after what God's will and his word would be for us. And that's what humbling ourselves means is to give ourselves over to His will and over to His word and to live for His purposes rather than our own. And if we refuse, we know that God loves us and cares for us so much that He's going to do something to get our attention. How much better for us to simply make the choice to run after God instead of run after ourselves and have to go through the circumstances like Nebuchadnezzar goes through it here. We have the opportunity to move in that direction right now while God's being patient with us, just as he was with Nebuchadnezzar for a year before he actually executed what he said he was going to. But when Nebuchadnezzar didn't live up to his end of the bargain, God came through on his. Because God cares for the faithful and God will humble the proud. And, and facing the fire leads us to one other understanding as well, and it's this, that God will not be mocked. You need to understand, friends, God will not be mocked. This takes us to chapter 5. And now we've fast-forwarded another 20, 25 years. We're right at the end of the Babylonian kingdom. 539 B.C. is the place that we have come to at this point. The waning days of the kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar died several years earlier, by this point. And now there's been a string of short-term kings that have come on the scene. And one will come on and uh, somebody will rise up against him and kill him and, and another and so that he might be king and he rises up for a while and then somebody comes and, and kills him and usually it's some other family member that's doing all of, it's a messed up family. I mean there's so much drama going on in this extended family. I mean it's kind of like the godfather a little bit or the Kardashians. I mean, it's just you know, strange stuff going on here. Chapter 5 tells us about the last in the succession of those kings, and it's a guy named Belshazzar. Now, don't get him confused with Belteshazzar. That's Daniel's Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. This guy's name is just Belshazzar, different guy, and the chapter opens with him throwing a party. Now, it's a vile party. It's a lascivious party, and it's going to get worse still, because what this guy does is he orders that there would be goblets that would be brought out that they would drink from and that they would celebrate with. And here's what makes that particularly offensive. It's the fact that the goblets that he orders to have brought out so that they might just feast with them are goblets that were brought from the temple in Jerusalem. You might remember last week, we saw this right at the beginning of chapter 1, where Nebuchadnezzar sweeps in, defeats Jerusalem and Judah and carts the people off, but also carts off these things from the temple and he places them in his own temple there in Babylon. Well, now Belshazzar is saying, hey, go get those goblets. Let's go ahead and drink a toast and an honor and praise to our gods of wood and stone. And if that to you is like that deserves some sort of awful, you know, dynamic sort of response, well, you're not going to be disappointed. Verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. Talk, talk about a party stopper. I mean, they're having this lewd party that's going on and they're doing their thing and now all of a sudden these fingers appear and they're starting writing on the, a party stopper to be sure. 
a, a little while back, it wasn't that long ago, but I was here in the building and I was walking through the building and I heard a lot of laughter and I heard a lot of, uh, you know, just kind of carrying on and, and uh, it sounded like young kids and they were just having a great time and I couldn't see them, but I kept walking in the building and I came around a corner and there they were. And there was two of them and they were jumping on one of the sofas out in the lobby here in the, on the Chippewa campus. And about the time that I saw them, they saw me, and uh, all of a sudden, one of them just sat down on the sofa, and he folded his hands on his lap, and he's looking straight ahead, and the other one said, we didn't do anything. <laughs> and I'm like, do you jump on the sofa at home? And they're like, yeah, we do. Dad tells us it's okay. So like, thanks a lot, you guys, for uh, raising your kids that way. But uh, I was definitely a party stopper for these two. Um, but not at all, I don't think, like it was for Belshazzar with his handwriting on the wall. And verse 6 cuts away to him so that we can see his reaction. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. This is Belshazzar facing his fire that's coming against him. There's something going on here, and he knows it. And so we look at him, just like we've looked at everybody. How does he respond? In that moment, well, what he does is he wants to know what's going on, and so he calls in all the wise men of Babylon, and nobody can answer. You know, none of them know what to say. And then the queen's like, well, there was this one guy who has been able to interpret dreams in the past, so who are you going to call? Dream buster, right? I mean, they might have thought ghost buster, because here's these just fingers on the wall. Who knows what that is? And so in comes Daniel. Belshazzar had offered all, all the other wise men to be third in his kingdom and lavish all this stuff on him if they could just give the answer. Of course, they can't do it. So he offers Daniel all that same stuff. And Daniel's like, you just keep your gifts. And I'll still tell you what it means. But before he does, he says, let me tell you a story. Let me give you a little bit of a history lesson about Nebuchadnezzar. And he goes on to tell a bit about Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Belshazzar is actually called his son in the text because there's not a great word in, in Hebrew or Aramaic for grandson. Besides, he's just trying to make the point that this is a direct descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. And he's telling the story about him. So the stories about Nebuchadnezzar's great power that laid, led to his great pride, that led to his great downfall until he humbled himself. And that's what he want, wants Belshazzar to learn from. I mean, somebody else has done all these steps before you and look at what they did and finally they learned and are you going to learn is basically the question. Then Daniel turns to Belshazzar, verse 22, says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have, grandson really, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven, verse 24. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written, mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean, mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, which is another form of parson from verse 25. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Summed up, it means your toast. <laughs> I mean, just uh, saying that's, that's what it says. Verse 30, here's what it says it in the text. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. 
too. You may remember from last week that Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about this statue with a gold head and all of that. And uh, you may remember from that that the silver shoulders and arms represented the next kingdom that was going to come, the Medo-Persian kingdom. That's what this text just said, is that these are the guys that come, 539, and take over, defeat Babylon, and uh, now become basically the rulers in the area. And this is exactly what this is telling us right here. So these three chapters are an interesting case study in, in three different people or groups of people in one case who are facing the fire. They're facing the fire. And it's like, how do they respond? Well, the last of those, Belshazzar, chapter 5, he's one who in the face of the fire that he's, that he's encountering and the things that are being called for him to do, he's defiant. He says, no, I'm not going to do it. And he just continued to mock God and it ends up in his absolute demise. He dies, kingdom is stripped away from Babylon, and that's the end of that. The guy in the middle, Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 4, he's a guy who struggled with pride on and off through his, own, through his whole life, and he wrestled with it and battled against it, and at, at the same time, we find him giving praise to God, and, and we're left at the end of the day asking ourselves, did this guy really put his, his faith and his trust in the God of heaven? And, and it seems that we have to come to the conclusion that, that yes, he did, though he certainly didn't live up to his full potential. Or you've got these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, chapter 3, where we started. These are guys who dare to be different. These are guys who say, we know and understand who the God of heaven is, that he is our God, and he is the only one who deserves praise and worship and glory, and he's the only one to whom we're going to give it. And they stand strong in the midst of their fire, literal and figurative. And of course, you have Daniel, who's kind of woven through all of this as the author, and we see that he too, like the three Hebrews, has, has stood strong in his faith and in an understanding, and as a result, God uses him to stand before kings, think about it, and communicate God's word to these kings. Pretty dynamic. So I want you to ask yourself, which of those three who face their fire are you most like? Now certainly we want to say Daniel, right? I mean, we want to be identified with Daniel or with one of his friends. And that's certainly a a lofty goal for us to go and try to attain, to aspire to that position. However, as we really look at the fruit of our lives, we might be a little bit more like Nebuchadnezzar. Never probably have thought of yourself like a Nebuchadnezzar, not because of his ruling status, but rather because of the fact that he was a guy who from time to time would make great declaration about who God is, He'd praise God even before other people, and it would be a glorious, beautiful demonstration and, and exclamation of who God is. But then, almost in the next breath, he'd shrink back, and he'd do his own thing, and he'd start to live for himself, and pride would rise up, and, and he'd live sort of self-serving and pursuing his own interests. And sometimes we can look kind of like that. Or maybe you would be one who would, who would just come out and admit, you know, most of my life I've just defied God. I've mocked him. I've known what he's wanted me to do, but I've just kind of turned my back on him all the way along. When the fire came, I denounced God. Kind of like Belshazzar does. 
Where do you see yourself in the story? Now, just because you see yourself at one place or another doesn't mean that your outcome is going to be naturally what that person's outcome is. Because you see, we've all been given God's patience. We've all been given the opportunity, like Nebuchadnezzar has it, him for a year after it was declared, here's what's going to happen if you don't, and he didn't, and it happened. We too are in this period of God's patience. We're in the period, we're in that year of God's patience only for, for you. Maybe it's been a lot more than a year that God's been patient. And maybe because of that, you're getting a bit defiant. It's like, well, if it hasn't happened yet, it's not going to happen. And so I'm not too worried about it. And so you just kind of go on your merry way, saying enough that you sound like Nebuchadnezzar giving praise, but really in a place where you're living for yourself. Well, just as God warned Nebuchadnezzar, God has placed in his word the fact that he's going to hold us accountable as well for the way that we live. And so we need to be asking ourselves, where are we exactly in that regard? How is it that we are living? See, don't interpret God's patience as God's apathy. He's definitely paying attention. And he definitely wants to move you to a place where you move toward him. And if there's something that needs to transpire so that he gets your attention, so you don't just keep moving down some road oblivious to what his call would really be on your life, he'll do that. And when he does, it's not because he's mean. It's because he loves you. And he desires you to be at the place where you can make a declaration like Nebuchadnezzar ultimately does. Praise be to God for his glory, for his majesty, for his goodness, for his greatness. This from the guy who for seven years was mad, out of his mind, mad. We have the opportunity to simply turn and run to God. The only question really is, will we? The exhortation that I'd leave with you that comes actually from Daniel is this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. He's near now. We are in a day of God's patience. Don't take it for granted. So wherever you are in that, as you evaluate, who am I really? We'd love to be Daniel and the three Hebrews. Most of us probably identify better somewhere else down the line. But wherever you are today, you can take a step forward. And I want to give you just a moment to do your own work with God. To seek the Lord while he may be found. To pray and do whatever is necessary in your heart, given where you are today. Maybe that's confessing the pride that overwhelms and presently has you going in a direction that is more for you than it is for God. What would it take to move in the direction of, of a Daniel? Let's take some moments just in silence and then I'll pray and, and wrap us up.
Our Heavenly Father, you know our hearts today. We have this story, part of which we are so familiar with, and it sort of just feels like Sunday school for a moment as we're just reminded of the story and we celebrate it and we cheer for Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and we're grateful that they are people of such strong faith and it inspires us and it encourages us, but Lord, it might not be us. We might be somewhere else and when, the, when we're facing the fire, that what it, what it causes to come out of us is something that is not humility. It is not declaring your glory. It's not standing strong for the things that we believe somewhere in there, but sometimes it, it turns us in a direction that actually walks us away from you. It causes us to question your goodness, not to rest in the depth of, of an understanding of your sovereignty like these guys do. Lord, we might be a whole lot like Nebuchadnezzar who looks to us like kind of a character you, you want to root against. But Lord, you got a hold of him. Just like you desire to get a hold of us and move us toward you. Lord, I just pray that we would be people who would run toward you now as we have opportunity in the midst of your patience to do so instead of just defiantly moving forward and one day ending up in a place where circumstances transpire in such a way that gets our attention for sure, but it's painful beyond painful. Lord, we celebrate the fact that you're a God who is not mocked and we look around us in a world and, and we say, I'm glad that God's not going to be mocked there and I'm glad that he's not going to be mocked there, but Yet if we look inside, there are times when we do the same thing. So Lord, forgive us. And in these moments, we've made our prayer to you. We've, we've offered our humility toward you. And today we're thankful that you offer us the opportunity to draw near. And we're also thankful today that in the midst of the difficulties and the pains and the problems of life, that you love us, that you care for us, that you don't desert us, but rather you walk with us and you seek to draw us nearer and nearer. So even as we walk through the, the fire, as we go through the flames, we can recognize that we're not alone, that you are with us, that you provide, that you support, that you encourage, that you strengthen, that we're not alone, like the three Hebrews, we're not alone, but that you walk with us to provide for us and care for the things that we can't care for on our own. So Lord, we celebrate that. And we praise you for that as we reflect on this dynamic account of the way that you've worked. Lord, thank you that you desire and will work in our lives in just the same way. We celebrate your goodness in the name of Jesus. Amen.